This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, alcohol and drug use, violence and threats of violence, and references to psychic assault and magical enslavement. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 292. Greetings, listeners. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also tell you what's new with my life and my writing. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today, I'm bringing you Chapter 33 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Jared took Danny to Kaya's Citadel for a so-called mystery date. This turned out to be a picnic in Overlook Park, a bubble of imitation wilderness, sitting inside a vast, transparent dome near the top of the mile-high arcology. Jared opened up an enchanted cornucopia bag, laid out a blanket, and opened a bottle of wine, and the two lovers snuggled up together to watch the lights of the city below. Meanwhile, Brian, Fiona, and Callie started their operation against Viscount, the vampire-owned security firm where the syndicate's mysterious package was taken. After circumventing the security system from the inside, Brian opened an emergency exit door for Fiona and Callie, who had rappelled down one of the central support shafts that ran the length of the tower. Together they made their way to Viscount's vault, which had three layers of defenses, magic wards, an electronic card reader, and a physical combination lock. Callie disabled the arcane defenses, and Brian tricked the card reader into thinking he had administrator-level access. That left it to Fiona to crack the safe, using her supernaturally enhanced senses to hear and feel the tumblers clicking into place. Fiona got the door open, revealing a deeply shadowed interior. As soon as she turned to ask Brian for a light, a dark shape came rushing out of the vault and tackled her to the floor. Making the Cut, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 33 The bottle of wine was mostly gone now, and Jared and Danny lay back on the blanket together in their private corner of Overlook Park. 
With the exception of the observation dome, the ceiling had been glamoured to resemble a blue sky spotted with clouds, and they watched and pointed out shapes to each other as the clouds blew past. So what name did you decide on? Jared asked idly. Hmm? For your ID records. Now that you're a woman, what did you pick for your full, official name? Ah, yes. Danny turned to rest her head on Jared's chest, while she ran her fingers in lazy circles over his stomach. Well, I went with Danielle, of course, just to prevent any possible confusion. My middle name used to be Roger, which is both awful and has no female equivalent, so I replaced that completely. With what? She looked up at him. Phoenix. Reborn from the ashes, that's me. He smiled. Danielle Phoenix Sharabi. I like it. She let out a contented little sound and tucked herself in closer to him. This was such a good idea. I'm glad you think so, because I have a few more surprises for you, if you're ready. Her curiosity piqued. She sat up and watched as he reached inside the tote bag again. He pulled out a small box, about a decimeter on each side, and tied shut with white ribbons. He smiled almost shyly as he handed it to her. For you, he said. A little celebration of your official transition to womanhood. There's actually three layers inside. With a flush of excitement, Danny untied the bow and opened the box. The first layer held a small silver locket. It was heart-shaped and had Danny engraved on one side and Jared on the other. Inside were two tiny photos of them both. Oh, Jared, it's beautiful. She slipped it around her neck immediately, then kissed him. Thank you. He grinned. Two more layers, he reminded her. She pulled out the little tray that had held the locket, revealing two small pastilles that looked like chewable vitamins. She looked at the label on the wrapper and blinked in surprise. Shimmer tabs? Jared, I don't want you to do anything you're not comfortable with. It's all right, he said, taking her hands in his. I did some checking on it. It really is legal, and the side effects are minimal. The only reason it's listed as a Class B is because it makes it easier to read people's minds. He touched her cheek fondly. I know you miss being able to be in a real gestalt when you make love. I do too. This way we'll be able to, at least once. I'll let you decide when the time is right. She looked into his eyes and saw the honesty there. He really did want to do this for her. Deeply touched, she took out the pastilles and handed one to Jared. No time like the present, she said. He blushed and looked around. Here? Now? She smiled wickedly. Who's going to see us? she asked, before slipping the tab under her tongue. It tasted sweet as it dissolved. She supposed that they had probably used some kind of powdered sugar in the binding agent. Come on, don't tell me you haven't been thinking about it since we got here. His blush deepened, but he gave in and took his own tab. While she waited for it to dissolve, she planted light kisses along his cheek and the side of his neck. Her hands found the buttons of his shirt and began undoing them. Mmm. Danny? Mm-hmm. One more layer in the box. 
Oh, right, yes. She giggled and wondered exactly how much alcohol had been in that wine. Okay, here we go. Layer number three. At the bottom of the box was a smaller box, a velvet-lined clamshell case. Oh, Jared, she whispered, pulling it out of the box and cradling it in her hands. Holy crap, Jared, is this what I think it is? She looked up and saw that he had changed positions. He was now on one knee in front of her. Danny, I never thought I could be happy again the way you've made me happy these last few weeks. I know some people would say it's too fast, but the way I see it, why would I want to wait? He put his hands over hers, resting them on the lid of the box. You've gotten into my heart in a way that I never would have dreamed possible, and I already can't imagine my life without you. Then he opened the box, revealing an old-fashioned but frankly beautiful diamond ring. Danielle Phoenix Shirabi, will you marry me? Danny was crying, and she wasn't sure when it had started. She fingered the ring, reverently, and as her fingers made contact with Jared's, she picked up a mental image from him. Catherine, Jared's first wife, pressing the ring into her hands and smiling at her. This... She sniffled. This was Catherine's ring, wasn't it? Jared nodded, and she felt a wave of uncertainty run through him. Yes, it is. Um, if that's a problem, I... What? No! Danny took him in her arms and kissed him, hard. Then she wiped away her tears and sniffled again. It's perfect, she insisted. It's like... She picked up the ring and held it up in front of him. It's like this is a part of you, right? Like a piece of your heart. And you gave it to Catherine. And when she died, it was like... Like that piece of you was locked inside here, waiting. She tried the ring on. It was a little loose, but it fit well enough for now. And now she's giving you to me. Jared gently touched her chin and turned her face toward his. Then that's a yes? She laughed and tackled him, knocking him back onto the blanket. Yes, silly, that's a yes? She felt like her heart would burst from the joy inside her. Yes, yes, now and forever, yes! Fiona! Brian rushed forward to help, sudden fear running through him like ice water. Fiona's psychometabolic powers could enhance her strength, her speed, or her senses, but she had a limited amount of psychic energy to distribute between them. She'd had all of her power pumped into her senses of hearing and touch in order to crack the safe, which meant that at the moment she was no stronger than a mundane. Fortunately, where strength failed, training took over. As the dark figure struck her, Fiona went to her knees and reached up to grab her attacker's clothes. She turned her fall into a combat throw, redirecting the attacker's momentum and sending it flying over her shoulder. The figure tumbled three meters across the floor and came up to its feet almost instantly, but by that time Fiona was ready for it. They faced each other across the room, and for half a second Brian got a good look at the enemy. The man wasn't exceptionally tall, nor was he muscle-bound, 
but he was wiry and fast, and moved with a predator's grace. He had been human once, a dark-haired Kitchlander in his mid-twenties, but his face was distorted by bloodlust into a feral look that no human could imitate. He grinned at Fiona, exposing long fangs, and his eyes glinted like a cat's in the dim light. Vampire. In that half-second before the creature could move again, Brian reached out with his electrokinesis and found a power conduit in the wall behind it. With as much strength as he could muster, he pulled on the current and summoned it to his outstretched hand. Lightning erupted from the wall and tore through the vamp's body, flash-frying his hair into a puff of foul-smelling smoke. Brian caught the lightning bolt in his left hand and channeled it back toward the vamp with his right, shocking him again as the current re-entered the wall behind him. The bolt didn't do as much as Brian had hoped it would. Vamps were normally vulnerable to fire, and he'd hoped to set this one's clothes alight, but the nondescript black uniform wasn't even smoldering. Must be flame-retardant fabric, he thought. The vamp must have fed recently as well. His scalp looked like it had suffered a bad sunburn, but he showed no signs of being ready to burst into flames. Mostly, he just looked really pissed. The vamp closed the distance with Brian in an instant, striking out at his throat with claw-like hands. Brian dodged, but couldn't get out of the way completely, and he felt three lines of fire flash down his left arm. He gasped at the pain and stumbled backward, but he saw that his distraction had done its work. The vampire had taken its eyes off of Fiona to deal with Brian. She struck with a vicious kick that connected squarely with the side of his knee, snapping the tendons and sending the monster to the floor. With an inhuman snarl, the vampire lunged for Fiona, but she danced quickly out of reach, wary of getting into a grapple with him. The vamp clambered away on his hands and one foot, spider-like, then braced himself against the wall and shook out his ruined leg. It snapped back into place, the tendons healing almost instantly. Fiona started to move toward him again to attack, but there was a blur of motion, and suddenly he was pointing a pistol squarely at her chest. She came up short, hands held up in front of her. Her face was a mask, as usual, but Brian was pretty sure he knew what she was thinking. Even she couldn't dodge bullets, not when they were being fired by a creature as fast as this one. Callie whistled softly. Damn, they put you inside the vault? What kind of skag job is that? The vamp pointed at the Viscount logo on his shirt pocket. Night Watchman, he said, flashing her that same predatory grin. He took a step toward her, sniffed, then took another step and sniffed again. His head cocked to one side like a wolf's, and his grin broadened even further. Hey, I know you. You're that runner girl, ain't you? What's the name? Linder? Callie Linder? Callie nodded once, her eyes wide. Well, ain't you the lucky one? He gestured to her. Lie down on the floor with your hands behind your head and I'll let you live, runner. You've done good work for us in the past. No reason you have to die here. Brian looked over at Callie. 
The runner's eyes were wide, and she bit her lip as she looked back and forth between the guard and Fiona. Finally, she looked over at Brian, her expression apologetic. Sounds like a deal to me, she said softly. She stepped over to the opposite side of the room, as far from Brian as possible, and lay down on the floor as the vamp instructed. Smart girl, the vamp said. Keeping his gun trained on Fiona, he edged over to Callie and put a pair of handcuffs on her. As he locked the second cuff into place, though, he glanced down at her and frowned. Hold it! His clawed hand shot out and gripped Callie's neck, pinning her to the ground. You've got something in your hand, runner. Give it here, now! All right, all right, damn it! Callie yelped, sounding almost hysterical as the vampire's grip tightened around her. Here, take it, take it! She opened her hand and released the object she had palmed, letting it roll to the floor in front of her. It was a soft yellow mass, roughly the same shape and consistency as a small hard-boiled egg. It had a single rune etched on its surface, which was glowing softly. The guard released Callie's neck and snatched up the object, peering at it closely. What is this? Callie hesitated. Tell me what it is or I'll turn you myself. Don't think I'm not authorized to do it. The runner turned over on her side and looked up at him. Even if he hadn't been a telepath, Brian would have been able to see her thoughts written on her face. No fucking way am I letting this guy turn me into his blood slave. I'm not going to ask you again, runner. Callie winced and bowed her head. Fuck, she muttered. Then, more loudly, It's a reagent pod. The vamp smiled knowingly. Ah, planning a little magic, eh, Niblet? He held up the pod in front of him and gave it a little shake as he peered at the glowing rune on its side. And what sort of gents do you have in here? Anything valuable? Callie glanced up at him, then lowered her head again. Not really, she admitted. Edra! The reagent pod burst open, releasing a cloud of fine yellow dust, and the sharp smell of garlic filled the air. The vampire doubled over, gagging and choking, as his skin broke out in a mass of angry red welts. His grip on the pistol slackened, and Brian called up an electromagnetic field that tore it out of his hand. He passed the gun quickly to Fiona, and with psi-enhanced senses, she took aim and fired twice. The bullets put out both of the vampire's eyes and drilled two holes in the back of his skull, spraying blood and gray matter across the opposite wall. He fell to his knees, blinded and stunned, and Fiona moved in to grapple him. She dislocated the vampire's hips with two brutal moves, then locked his arms behind him. Stake, she shouted. Brian pulled one from his belt and tossed it to her. With sci-enhanced strength, Fiona drove the sharpened length of wood between the vamp's ribs and into his heart. Immediately, the vampire went limp and fell to the floor, immobilized and as senseless as any other corpse. Callie got up and dusted herself off, the handcuffs off of her wrists as quickly as they had gone on. "'We'd better hurry,' she said. "'Odds are he set off some kind of alarm before he attacked us. 
You've got maybe ten minutes to get out of here, tops. Brian nodded. Pulling out an electric torch, he headed for the vault, Fiona and Callie close behind him. Fortunately, like all things associated with the Vampire Syndicate, the vault proved to be extremely well-organized. File cabinets lined both sides of the vault, and a long, narrow table in the middle of the room provided a space where files could be opened and examined. The far end of the room housed a computer terminal connected to a set of file servers. Brian examined the computers and quickly found that the network didn't extend outside the room, but that was easily remedied. He gestured at the file cabinets. See if you can find any hard copies that look relevant. I'm going to run a cable from an outside line. Fiona nodded once, then pulled open the nearest cabinet and began scanning through the tabs. Brian quickly located the spare network cables in a nearby storage closet and plugged one of them into the closest data jack he could find, in the first row of cubicles outside the antechamber. When he came back to the vault, he saw that Fiona had located the index for the file cabinets and was speed-reading through it, occasionally stopping to pull a file and set it on the table beside her. On the opposite side of the room, Callie was opening cabinets and pulling out files at random, trusting to her uncanny luck. Both of them had high-resolution digital cameras ready to photograph anything that looked relevant. Brian plugged the network cable into the terminal and used his phony administrator ID to log in. The specter stirred in interest and came over to the newly connected servers, looking around for anything suspicious but it had already tagged Brian as a friendly user and dismissed him from its mind. That left only the encryption on the files themselves, which they could worry about cracking later once they got out of here. Brian connected to a WorldNet server controlled by the Hive and began a rapid-fire transmission of all the data files on the Vault's computers, beginning with the night of May 26th and working forward. As the files began uploading, he went over to the table and began helping Fiona and Callie photograph the hard files. He couldn't make much sense of what he was looking at, and he didn't bother to try. They worked quickly and silently, pulling out files, photographing them, replacing them in the drawers as soon as they had been imaged. Brian kept an eye on his watch and an ear tuned to the office outside. Vampires were incredibly quiet as the guard's ambush of Fiona had demonstrated, but there was a good chance that they would at least hear the doors opening if the vamps were in a hurry. Brian called time at six minutes. That's it. Pack it in. Going back to the terminal, he cut the connection to the collective server, then put a finger in the computer's data port and scrambled the machine's history files with a thought. As he had promised Callie, he wouldn't destroy any of Viscount's data, but this would at least keep them from finding out what he had taken, or where it had been sent. He pulled out the network cable and quickly followed Fiona and Callie out of the vault. As soon as they were outside, Callie used a non-detection scroll to erase any forensic evidence of their presence. Silently, they fell into step behind Brian and headed for their exit point. They were halfway there when Fiona grabbed Brian and dragged him behind a line of cubicles, a split second before a burst of gunfire tore through the hallway. Callie hit the floor next to them, stifling a curse. Fiona answered the shots with three of her own, 
and Brian heard a clatter of office furniture as some of their assailants took cover. He chanced a quick look over the top of the cubicle and quickly ducked back down again. From the far side of the office, moving through a maze of cubicles, a syndicate fire team was closing in on them. And that's the end of Chapter 33. Come back next time, when Brian's team fights to escape a vampire death trap, and Artax's spell gives Daniel a rude awakening. William Stafford said, A writer is not so much someone who has something to say, as he is someone who has found a process that will bring about new things he would not have thought of if he had not started to say them. So let's see what I've found to say this week. It's time for the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of July 3rd through July 9th. I wrote 1,057 words this week, over the course of 2.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 470 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 22 days without breaking my chain. This week was all about editing Learning the Ropes, my prequel novelette for Natasha. You may recall that I was very unsure about this story when I finished it. I was feeling discouraged and tired and honestly a little burned out, but I decided to share the story with Patreon subscribers, and there it got a very positive reception from people whose opinions I respect. That helped me start feeling like maybe the story wasn't a mess. And sure enough, when I came back to it this week to edit, I didn't find much that needed changing. I spent about five hours editing the story this week, but that didn't result in a lot of new words, which is why my word count this week is so low. The new writing I did this week was working on new book descriptions for the House of Bellevue. I wrote my original book descriptions before I had finished the books themselves, back when I thought this was going to be a single novel. As a result, the descriptions didn't fit anymore. I was able to use some parts of what I had written, but there were a lot of blanks to fill in. I still haven't finished that task, because it was more important for me to get learning the ropes ready for my narrators. Fortunately, I've got plenty of time to think about the book descriptions, I've decided not to publish the print books until the audiobooks are ready too, which will probably be around April of 2022. Lastly, I spent some time this week formatting the books for publication, so I can figure out page counts and what dimensions I'm going to need for the print covers. This is not the sexy part of the writing process, but it's a part of the job that has to get done. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. 
That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.